In May of 1946, a few months before the King David Hotel bombing, a British officer rolled up at the entrance to a displaced persons camp for Jews in Italy. He presented the camp's commander with orders to transport a thousand Jews from the camp to ships docked at the port in La Spezia. The camp's commander dutifully looked over the paperwork, saw that everything was in order, and waved through the convoy of 38 trucks to be loaded up with Holocaust survivors. The logistics complete, the convoy headed off to the port. But here's the thing. That British officer, he wasn't really a British officer. His uniform was stolen. So were the 38 trucks. And the orders were forged. This was all part of a slick Haganah operation to secretly transport Holocaust survivors to Palestine as part of their long-running, illegal Aliyah Bet operation. In the months and years after the war ended, the operation became ever more intense as hundreds of thousands of desperate and traumatized Holocaust survivors languished in displaced persons camps all over Europe, waiting to figure out how to rebuild their lives. The Jewish homeland in Palestine beckoned, it was yet another battle in the ongoing war between the British and the Jews over who would control Palestine and where Jews who had just survived the Holocaust would be allowed to live now that Europe didn't want them anymore. It was a deeply symbolic, historic Zionist operation with a profound connection to ancient Jewish history. The escape of hundreds of thousands of Jews from slavery in Egypt towards the promised land of Israel. This was not lost on any of the participants. In fact, the most famous transport ship to emerge from the whole operation was most appropriately named the Exodus. Aliyah Bet was the Haganah's alternative resistance to the violence of the Irgun and the Lehi. I'm Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people, do everyone our share to redeem the world. When my grandparents, amongst many others, found themselves liberated after surviving years in Nazi concentration camps in the ghettos in Poland, they didn't go back home. They had no home to return to. Most of their families had been murdered and their homes either wrecked or taken over by local Poles. Instead, the Allies put them, and hundreds of thousands of others, in displaced persons camps. The Americans, French, British, and Russians all ran these camps. Sometimes they were in hotels, sometimes in makeshift tent cities, sometimes in repurposed concentration camps. At these DP, displaced persons, camps, the Jews tried to scratch out a basic living in Spartan conditions while searching for lost family members and figuring out where to go next. Palestine was a major draw, of course. The Zionist movement embedded itself in the camps, establishing everything from youth groups to agricultural training programs to prepare survivors for life in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. David Ben-Gurion made visits too. Jewish nationalism was inherently attractive. These survivors had barely made it out of the concentration camps and now found themselves stuck in yet another internment camp. Of course, conditions had dramatically improved and their lives were not in danger, but they still resented their lack of autonomy. After all they had been through, they wanted to go where they could determine their own fate as Jews. Now, the Americans, French, and Russians had no problem with Jews leaving the DP camps to go to Palestine. President Harry Truman called on Britain to admit 100,000 Jews. But the British, as we know, did have a problem. The White Paper's restrictions on Jewish immigration was still mostly in place. 
I say mostly because actually the British had begun to allow about 1,500 Jews to come into Palestine each month, a bit more than the white paper allowed. But still, not nearly enough to satisfy even a significant portion of the hundreds of thousands still in Europe, and yet just enough to stoke the anger of the Arabs. The British foreign minister, Ernest Bevan, said that the Jews had waited 2,000 years to return to the Holy Land. So they can wait longer. The fact is, Though the Holocaust had certainly generated worldwide sympathy for the Jews, the world's governments did not respond accordingly. Nobody, including the United States, wanted more than a small portion of the displaced persons. Palestine was it. And so the Yishuv was determined to continue their end run around the British by illegally bringing in as many Jews as possible. Not only were Zionist teachers, farmers, doctors, and Jewish agency officials embedded in the DP camps, so too was the Haganah. Yehuda Arazi was something of a swashbuckling Haganah fighter in Palestine. He was born in the Polish city of Ludz and arrived in Palestine with his parents as a teenager. He joined the Haganah and the local police force. In 1933, he was the lead investigator in the death of Chaim Alozarov from episode 41. During the war, he stole 5,000 rifles from the British to give to the Haganah and was forced into hiding. He emerged in 1945 with a stolen British military uniform, which he used to get himself into Italy to join the Jewish brigade of the British army. During the war, thousands of Jews from Palestine had enlisted in the British army to fight against the Germans. Many of them had been organized into a Jewish brigade. With the war over, many individual soldiers returned to Palestine, oftentimes to join the Haggadah or the Irgun to apply their new military skills to the Jewish resistance. But many others stayed on active duty, and many of those soldiers were sympathetic to the resistance. They helped undercover Haganah fighters move around Europe and organize smuggling operations to get the Jews out of the DP camps. That's what happened with Yehuda Arazi. Members of the Jewish Brigade helped him join the brigade under a false name. In reality, he was the head of the whole Italian branch of the Haganah's Aliyah Bet operation. Thus he found himself at the gates to that DP camp in Italy in his stolen uniform, with his stolen trucks, and falsified orders to take 1,000 Jews to the port in La Spezia. They managed to load most of the Jews onto a boat before the British figured out what had happened. They raced down to the port to block the ship from leaving, a scuffle ensued, and the British and the Jews settled into a six-week-long standoff. The British brought in another boat to relieve conditions on the overcrowded vessel. Meanwhile, local Italians rallied to the Jews' cause, offering up food and clothing and staging protests to generate global media coverage and international sympathy. They put up a sign, renaming the dockyard, the Port of Zion. There's still a plaque there commemorating it. While Yehuda Arazi and the British and Italian authorities entered negotiations, the thousand Jews declared a hunger strike. They went for 75 hours. The pressure on Britain was enormous, and they finally caved. The two boats were allowed to sail for Haifa. Thousands greeted the refugees, while the British carried out a promise to issue visas for everyone on board. Yehuda Arazi and the Haganah won this round. The La Spezia affair, as it was called, endured as a lasting symbol of the Aliyah Bet. Salvador Dali painted one of the ships involved in 1968. 
And although Yehuda Arazi died in 1959, he was immortalized as one of the most famous Jewish literary characters of the 20th century, Ari ben Kanan, in Leon Yaris's 1958 novel, Exodus, of which many plot points come from the La Spezia affair. His character was played by Paul Newman in the movie version, which, if you want to watch a movie that will make you feel incredibly good about the creation of Israel, I highly recommend it. You can invite me over. I'll narrate along, which will totally not be annoying. Although the La Spezia affair was a big success, not all of the Haganah's operations were. Think how difficult it was. The Haganah had to get Jews out of displaced persons camps in the landlocked centers of Germany, Austria, and Italy, and find a means to transport them hundreds of miles to a coastal city. There the Haganah had to wrestle up a ship, evade British patrols, supply the boats with crews and supplies for hundreds or even thousands of people to survive for sometimes several weeks at sea, and then set sail across the Mediterranean. And that wasn't even the hardest part. As they approached Palestine, they had to somehow dodge a nearly impenetrable British naval blockade designed solely to stop these refugees from making it to shore. It could be dangerous business, but it was of the highest stakes. The vast majority of these Jewish refugees were young. They had to have been to be strong enough to survive the concentration camps. Yet they were severely weakened, their bodies ravaged by years of neglect, and they were emotionally traumatized beyond anything that we can imagine. All the hope they had acquired upon their liberation, the dream that they would soon be reunited with their families, was often dashed in the DP camps when they learned that their loved ones would never be found. The fierce determination to survive that sustained them through the Holocaust now turned into a tenacious desire to determine their own fate. Zionism offered that hope, and Palestine was its destination. Getting to the land of Israel became their single-minded purpose. The British had better be prepared to do more than simply stop the boats at sea. They had better be prepared to fight over them. In 1928, a 320-foot-long steamer ship was launched to ferry passengers up and down the Chesapeake Bay. Called the President Warfield, it was commissioned as a troop vessel in World War II seeing action in the Atlantic and taking part in D-Day at Normandy. After the war, it was decommed and left to quietly rust in a lonely corner of a Norfolk, Virginia shipyard. It was the perfect kind of ship for the Haganah. On a visit to the United States, David Ben-Gurion pulled aside a small group of wealthy Jews in a private meeting. He impressed upon them a task to raise as much money as they could for the Aliabet operation. Funds were desperately needed, he said. Between buying and supplying ships, organizing transportation in Europe, and providing for tens of thousands of Jews, illegal immigration was an expensive endeavor. The group agreed to become bagmen for the Haganah. Now, it wasn't an illegal organization in America or anywhere else, just mandatory Britain, but it was still a clandestine service, and so this huge fundraising effort was kept on the DL to avoid the diplomatic repercussions of the British getting angry at the Americans. The Jewish community ended up raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for Aliyah Bet. Millions in today's dollars. $40,000 bought them the President Warfield, idling in Norfolk. A group of young American Jews, mostly in their late teens and early 20s, signed up to crew it. Between them, they had approximately zero years of sailing experience of any kind. 
Its first sea trial on open water was a disaster. Everyone got sick, the ship flooded, nothing worked, and basically this was no kind of boat fit for, you know, actually floating on the water. It got so bad that the non-Jewish captain gave the order to abandon ship. The Jewish crew refused and they limped back to Norfolk. That's when they decided to get a Jewish captain, who would understand that, sinking or not, they would get to Europe to rescue their fellow Jews, even if they had to jump in the water and push. Out in the Atlantic, on the way to Europe, the crew took down the name President Warfield and gave it another name, a name to evoke the ancient Jewish past, the urgency of the present, and the determination that the Zionists had to get this boat to the Promised Land. They called it the Exodus 1947. Docking in Montpellier in France, the Exodus took on 4,500 passengers, the largest single haul of any ship in the entire Aliyah Bet operation. Unlike other operations with smaller ships, there was no hope of sneaking past the British naval blockade with this one. The ship was huge, and anyway, even in the port, the British began tracking them, the Navy following them out into the Mediterranean on July 11, 1947. Since the Haganah knew there would be a confrontation with the blockade, they had been outfitting the ship for resistance, to make it as hard as possible for the British Navy to board it. But they also kept the boat in pretty terrible shape, hoping that the British, out of safety concerns, would let the boat pass long enough for the Haganah to beach it on the coast. It was the perfect PR trap for the British, and they walked right into it. On board the Exodus out in the Mediterranean, shadowed by British naval destroyers, the Haganah organized the refugees into resistance units. Each individual, down to the youngest possible child, was drilled in his and her responsibility for when the British would try to take the ship. The exodus was overcrowded, but not horribly so. They had enough supplies to last them two weeks. Several babies were born. On July 18th, about 30 miles from Palestine, the British boarded. Fights broke out all over the ship. One of the American crew was beaten to death. Two other refugees were shot to death. Several British soldiers were wounded. But soon the British seized control, sailed into Haifa, unloaded everyone, and then reloaded them onto several other ships to send them right back to France. Imagine that. Holocaust survivors desperate to leave Europe managed to get their feet on the ground in the Holy Land, only to be forced onto boats and sent back to where their families had all just been murdered. The British knew it would look bad, but they did it anyway, hoping that it would deter the Haganah from carrying out more Aliyah bed operations. It didn't. Back in France, the British ran into more trouble. The French refused to force the Jews off the boats unless the Jews themselves agreed to disembark. The Haganah rallied the refugees to refuse and to declare a 24-hour hunger strike in protest. After a three-week impasse, the British came up with another, even worse idea. Send the exodus back to British-occupied Germany. For the Holocaust survivors, it was a terrible psychological blow. The British faced another fight on their hands at Hamburg, and they stormed the ships to force the Jews off. Luckily, the mayhem was limited to lots of screaming and shoving and several fistfights. There were multiple injuries, but none too serious. The Jews were parceled out to various internment camps, a few of which had previously been Nazi concentration camps. It was not His Majesty's government's finest hour, to say the least. 
Conditions weren't great in those camps, and the Jews were getting worldwide sympathy, so the British kept trying to move them around to different, upgraded camps. But here's the part I love. Every time they moved a group of Jews from one point to another, the Haganah would siphon a bunch away, often a territory occupied by the United States. Like walking a bunch of cats down the street and you keep losing one here and there, the British would get to the destination to find that a couple of trucks had disappeared along the way, or there were mysteriously a hundred less Jews than they had started out with. In this way, the Haganah just kept trying to send the Exodus Jews off to Palestine. And most of them eventually made it, although in some cases it took several tries. Only 1,800 of the original 4,500 were left by the time Israel became a state. And by the way, the Exodus ship itself did eventually make its way to Israel. But with a new state, war with the Arabs, and a barely functioning economy, it sat slowly rusting in the port of Haifa. In the early 1950s, there was an effort to restore and preserve it, but a fire broke out, and what didn't burn sank to the bottom of the harbor. A few efforts to raise the hulk over the next several decades all failed. Eventually, it seems, the expanding port of Haifa was simply built over the wreck somewhere, and it is now lost forever. Israel finally got around to dedicating a memorial to the Exodus in 2017. The Exodus 1947 served as the defining symbol of both the daring do of the Haganah and the seemingly callous indifference and hostility of the British. The Exodus received so much attention that it was later dubbed the ship that launched a nation. But it was just one of some 140 efforts to smuggle the Jews in by boat. Many thousands of refugees did make it into Palestine, but tens of thousands were arrested. Either the British intercepted their boats and forced them away, or towed the boats into Haifa, or managed to grab the refugees once they reached shore. Unlike with the Exodus, it was rare to send the Jews back to Europe. Instead, the British had another primary detention site. Beginning in the summer of 1946, the British began to send most of the Jews they arrested for illegal immigration to internment camps on the island of Cyprus. Eventually, some 50,000 Jews ended up there, stuck in limbo between a Europe they refused to go back to and British Palestine, which refused to let them in. The British had no real idea what to do with them beyond, it seems, just having them languish until such a time as the world figured out what to do with Palestine. Conditions in these camps were austere and very tough, but of course, nothing like concentration camps. There was enough, just enough, food, water, basic medical care, and other humanitarian necessities, but the camps were massively overcrowded, always on the verge of an outbreak, and there was never enough doctors, nurses, or teachers. The American Joint Distribution Committee, which still exists today, provided most of the needed supplies. The Jewish agency in Palestine helped a little too, but not much. They didn't want the British to think that they were legitimizing the existence of these camps. There were some 6,000 orphans whose parents had been murdered, more than 2,000 babies were born, and over the course of a couple years, more than 400 Jews died. For the Zionists, the detention camps in Cyprus were intolerable. There was no plan, and this took a huge psychological toll. These Jews had survived the Holocaust only to be held in yet more detention camps just a few hours sail from their Jewish homeland. There were many escape attempts, a few were successful, but Cyprus was an island. It was hard to get off and make it to Palestine. The British only allowed about 700 Jews to leave for Palestine each month, 
And that situation persisted until Israel became a state. In 1939, the British government determined that there were about 450,000 Jews in Palestine. Under the provisions of the White Paper of that year, an additional 75,000 would be allowed over the next five years, after which immigration would be halted. So when the British conducted a census in Palestine in 1947, they expected to find around 525,000 Jews. Instead, they found some 630,000. Since the early 1930s, the Haganah's Aliyah Bet operation had illegally brought in around 100,000 Jews from Europe, lately nearly all of them Holocaust survivors. It was as much a PR campaign as it was a clandestine operation, and in this too the Haganah had great success. World opinion was mobilized in sympathy for the plight of these Jewish refugees, desperate to find redemption and a new life in the ancient Jewish homeland. As much as, if not more than, the terrorist attacks still being carried out by the Irgun and Lehi in Palestine, the Haganah tarnished Britain's reputation and galvanized the decision to retreat from the British mandate. As one historian described it, and I like this, it was resistance, not by killing people, but by rescuing people. <laughs> Between the King David Hotel bombing, the Akko prison break, the Sergeant's Affair, and now the Exodus, the British were spent. They had already decided to give up the British mandate. They also gave up on determining Palestine's future, leaving that in the hands of the United Nations. They had also given up trying to mediate between Jews and Arabs to prevent the explosion of violence that was sure to come when the mandate ended. Having arrived victorious in Jerusalem in 1918, 29 years later the British were getting ready to leave, exhausted and demoralized. First the Arabs had bested them in the 1930s, and now the Jews had in the 1940s. They were joining a long list of the Holy Land's conquerors whose victories lasted far shorter than they had anticipated. But now there was the question of what would take the mandate's place. As the British stepped back, two new world powers stepped in. The United States and the Soviet Union. And at the end of 1947, the world made a decision that changed the course of history. That's next time. Lehitraut. See you later.